Grace be to you in peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we'll be focusing our attention on 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul helps us to understand how God is merciful and loving and just at the same time. Pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God is love. That's true. That's what he tells us. That's how he defines himself. What does that mean? Many in our world today, God is love means do whatever you want. If there really is a God and he really is love, whether or not there's such a thing as sin, it doesn't really matter. He'll forgive you anyway. So just do whatever you want. A way of thinking is nothing new. Paul was addressing that same issue with the Corinthians. They heard Paul tell them, Jesus paid for every sin. And so they said, well, Great, everything's permissible. It's okay to commit adultery. It's okay to get drunk. It's okay to go eat in the idol temple. God is love. Paul had to explain to them pretty clearly that yes, God is love, but he's also just. He doesn't allow his forgiveness, his love to be taken advantage of. When God appeared to Moses, he made that clear. We heard about it in the Old Testament lesson where God explained who he is. This is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, forgiving guilt and rebellion and sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. He calls their children and their children's children to account for the guilt of the fathers even to the third and fourth generation. Paul makes the point by taking us back to the history of Israel in the desert. Was God merciful and gracious to his people? Yeah. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In his great mercy, God heard the prayers, the cries of his people as they were being oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. He answered their prayers. He sent them Moses to deliver them. We heard last week. He rescued them, brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground, had his pillar of presence cast darkness on the Egyptians while it gave light to his people. Paul says that was like a baptism. The waters came and washed away their enemies. And because God rescued them, he could say, you're mine, you're my holy people, you're my chosen nation. It cemented for them that God has chosen Moses to be the leader. God was merciful to his people. It was an act of mercy because God saved them all. Did you hear how many times that uh, Paul said all? All the people went through the Red Sea, even the ones who didn't believe. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
after this great deliverance. We're told that Miriam led the people with tambourine and dancing. And Moses wrote a beautiful song of praise to the Lord. Imagine those songs being like some of our VBS songs where they have actions and noises and the kids get all excited. It's a great song of praise to God. They recognized that God had been gracious and merciful to them. But that wasn't all. God mercifully provided even more blessings. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. God gave them manna in the desert. Spiritual, miraculous food that provided all the nutrition that they needed. That's all they needed to eat. And then when they grumbled and complained, as well as all these manna every day, and every, we don't have any meat, God graciously gave them quail. When they didn't have any water to drink, he gave them water from a rock. All these things were acts of mercy and grace because he gave these things to everybody, even the ones who grumbled and complained against him. If he had given them what they deserved, if he had been only just, he would allow them to starve and die of thirst in the wilderness. Time and time again, we see how God was indeed slow to anger, abounding in mercy to his people who were often described as hard-hearted and stiff-necked and rebellious. Isn't it the same way that God deals with us today? In mercy and grace, he showers us with abundant blessings. The physical blessings he's given us, the standard of living we enjoy is, is higher than some of those ancient kings that you read about. We have an abundance of food. In season and out of season, we can go to the store and the shelves are full. And walk into our kitchen or bathroom and just turn on the faucet and have clean, safe water to drink. Don't have to go out to the well and carry it like maybe some of your grandparents or great-grandparents had to do. He showered us with those physical blessings. But the greatest blessings, of course, are the spiritual ones. And Paul alludes to those too, doesn't he? We too have been baptized. That's an act of God's grace. He comes to us in baptism and he says, I've delivered you, I've rescued you, I've washed away your sins, I've made you my dear child, part of my kingdom, a chosen person. I've given you unity with Christ, joined you together with him. I've given you, through the Holy Spirit, working faith in your hearts, the power to drown your old sinful nature by daily contrition and repentance. He's given us the Lord's Supper, spiritual food and drink, the body and blood of Jesus, so that we can have absolutely no doubt that what Jesus did on the cross is for you, for me, a personal thing. He's given us these tremendous blessings and he continues to shower us with those blessings. And yet, sometimes we take it for granted. Or very often, we tend to fall into that same sin as Israel did 
we grumble and we complain and say, God, you aren't doing it right. I think I know better than you do. God, it's not enough. It's not fair. You're not giving me what I deserve. All that sinful grumbling comes from our hearts too, just as it did from Israel. As we look at ourselves and we see how deserving we are not of any blessings from God, not of his mercy, but really only of his punishment, we too have to conclude the Lord is compassionate and gracious to us. He is slow to anger and overflowing with mercy and truth, maintaining mercy for thousands, giving, forgiving our guilt, our rebellion, and our sin. God is love. He proved it. He didn't just say it. He showed it. He sent his one and only son into the world. Sent him to the cross as payment in full for our sins, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Not for his friends, but for you and me. For people who were born into this world hostile to God, enemies of God by nature. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So think about those Corinthians. God is love, so everything's permissible. Sin all you want, because Jesus already paid for all of your sins. Paul's response is, may no one ever think that way. First of all, in your baptism, you were united with Jesus in his death, Paul says. And if you were united with Jesus in his death, you died to sin. And through baptism, through the Holy Spirit working in the word, you have a new man of faith. And that new man in faith says, how could I ever take God's grace for granted? How could I ever test him? God's mercy and grace is not an excuse for me to sin, our new man says. That forgiveness and mercy of God is my motivation to want to thank God and to serve him with my life. Someone once said, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not that you get baptized and now you're good and you just sit back and that's it. Paul described it a different way, didn't he? He said, you're not the spectator in the stand. You're the Olympic athlete. You're the one who has to have constant, intense training every day. Training in the Word. Secondly, God is also a God of justice. That's what he said about himself. He said, he will not by no means clear the guilty calls their children and their children's children to account for the guilt of the fathers, even to the third and fourth generation. As long as that unbelief continues to be passed on from one generation to the next generation, the guilt piles up. The Lord is truly slow to anger, but his patience does run out. Think of Israel again. He showered them with grace and mercy and love and gave them all kinds of miraculous signs and and physical and spiritual blessings, and they continued to reject him and rebel against him. Ultimately, Paul reminds us that all of those people, of all of the people that came through the Red Sea, too, entered the Promised Land. Unless we think that that was an eternal judgment on those people, 
It doesn't mean that they didn't get to heaven. Remember, Moses himself couldn't enter the promised land as a physical consequence of his sin against the Lord. But the Bible tells us he is in heaven through repentance and faith in the promise. The point, Paul says, is that if you abuse God's grace and you take his grace and mercy for granted, there may be earthly consequences. And if it continues through the end of your life, there will be eternal consequences for that. And he says, that is why I hit my body hard and make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be rejected. When the devil tempts you to think, like many in the world today, like the Corinthians were tempted to think, that because you've been showered with God's blessings, that because you have been baptized, and God has mercifully and graciously adopted you into his family, into his kingdom, you can do whatever you want because, well, you know, sins are already paid for. When that temptation comes, remember God's justice. He will not allow his grace to be abused or cheapened. As Paul says in another place, if you think you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Take Paul's example. Do whatever it takes to get your sinful nature under control. He says, I hit my body hard. I give myself a black eye. I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that my sinful nature doesn't gain control. We don't want to be like those Jewish leaders who had all of those blessings, even Jesus standing before them and performing miracles, and still ended up outside the kingdom looking in. If you're struggling to overcome a sin, get an accountability partner. Put filters on your computer. Get a new set of friends that don't encourage you to sin, but rather encourage you to live for the Lord. Have a healthy fear for being rejected and missing out on the eternal blessings that God wants you to have. It's really a, a difficult question that our logic has trouble with, right? How can God be just and merciful? His justice should, logically to us, always trump his mercy, right? Sin must be punished. You can't just look the other way. You can't just excuse it. Then he wouldn't be just. And the answer to the question, Paul says, is the cross. That's where God solved the problem for us. Paul says that God offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement so that he could be just. Sin's been punished. He just punished it in Jesus instead of punishing you. God gave Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement so that he could be just and at the same time be merciful. Justify those who have faith in Jesus cross is the answer. So when the devil tempts you, and he likely will at some point in time, to think that your sins are too great for God's mercy, look to the cross. In Jesus, see your sins being punished. See your guilt being removed. Every single one of them paid for by Jesus. Realize that God is just. He has punished your sin. Now he offers you his grace and mercy in Christ. 
And that grace and mercy is received through faith. Faith says, thank you, Lord, I'd be lost without you. How then can I knowingly and purposely rebel against you? Help me never to take your mercy for granted. Amen.